Tonight's sermon I'm going to read is from Richard Bennett. Richard Bennett was a uh, Roman Catholic theologian who converted to the Reformed faith. And uh, he was very passionate, of course, after he converted and uh, became well known for many years in, in Reformed circles. The sermon is entitled, The True Gospel Versus the Modern Evangelical Lie. And the text, which is also the reading, is going to come from Romans 3, verses 21 through 26. And uh, Reverend Bennett used the Old King James Version, so I'm going to also, hope we hopefully will enjoy the poetic style and the beauty of that. So here is Romans 3, 21 through 26. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past, through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and a justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for being a source of all truth. We thank you for being such a sovereign God, even sovereign over the circumstances that have set upon us tonight. Lord, we pray that you would move past faltering lips and move past stubborn ears or any... Uh, distractions that might come upon us tonight, and may you, by your Spirit, truly deliver your word to us. We pray, Lord, that you would do that according to your sovereign purposes for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. By way of introduction, I have great difficulty in listening to evangelists on radio and TV who continually tell us about the amount of things we have to do to accept Jesus into our hearts. Many of the evangelical Christian tracts likewise tell us about the amount of dedication or commitment needed in order to make a decision for Christ. In the face of such information being presented to us, we must realize that the first thing that must be understood biblically about the gospel, that it is concerning Jesus Christ our Lord, in the words of Paul in verse 3 of Romans 1. While the gospel is proclaimed to all, it is not about us or about anything that happens in us. It solely concerns what Jesus Christ did for us through his atoning death and resurrection. The gospel is an historic fact. Biblical faith is not concerned with recommending techniques, whether mystical or ethical, whereby salvation may be obtained for that is the burden of all false religion. 
Rather, the Bible proclaims that God has, as a concrete historical fact, saved all his people from destruction. The gospel by which ye are saved, which we see in 1 Corinthians 15, is the finished and complete work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Next, the God before whom we are saved. What seems to be totally missing from modern evangelical circles is the knowledge of the holy. Proverbs 9.10 states that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. Knowledge of the holy is defined by the Bible as knowledge of who God is in himself as the all-holy one. Unless it is proclaimed that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all, how would anyone begin to see the evil of sin? According to scripture, the words a person must ask are, Who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name, for thou only art holy? With the Apostle Peter, one must rightly come to fear the Lord God's command, Be ye holy, for I am holy. Unless a person understands something of God's attributes, and that he is all holy, there is no reason to desire the perfect righteousness of Christ in salvation. Thus, Scripture asks the question, Who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like thee, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? Is God, he's the author. He is the one who's the justifier. In the Bible, justification is God's gift to the believer which is imputed to him based on Christ's finished work on the cross. Quite simply, justification of God is God's righteous judgment of the believer, declaring him both guiltless in regard to sin and righteous in regard towards moral standing in Christ before the holy God. This judgment by God is legally possible because of the substitutionary death and resurrection of Christ Jesus in the place of the believer. Justification is first and foremost God's legal judgment of the believer. Therefore, as by the offense of one judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. Justification is God's righteous judgment to demonstrate in the words of Romans 3.26, that he is just and a justifier of those who believe in Jesus. This righteous judgment of God is the center of the apostolic preaching of the good news in the Bible. Justification is a righteous judgment freely given by God, as we see in our text tonight. Once again, but now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. To declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and a justifier of him who believeth in Jesus.
So what is the purpose of the gospel? It's to reveal God's righteousness. Revealing the righteousness of God without the law is the purpose of the gospel. What is declared is not human works righteousness of any kind, but rather it is God's righteousness in our Lord Jesus Christ that is revealed. The gospel is a demonstration in concrete historical fact of the righteous judgment of God. Before his all-holy nature, sin had to be punished and true righteousness established. This has been accomplished in the faithful obedience of the Lord Christ Jesus and his propitiatory sacrifice. Christ's faithfulness is proclaimed in verse 22 of our text. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ. When the Bible declares that justification is God's gift to the believer, it also shows in a few words what this justification is. Justification is found in and of Christ. It is the demonstration of the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, even unto death. Such perfect rectitude is of God and from God, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ. The great news is that this absolute righteousness is unto all and upon all them that believe. Theos in a Greek text can be rightly translated both of God and from God. As one reads of God, it can be understood in both senses. It is Christ's faithfulness as it were of him and to the believer as it were from him. Legally, what is shown here is a believer's identification with the Lord Jesus Christ. God has provided Christ's righteousness to sinners who believe. There are several passages in which the faithfulness of the Lord is mentioned. In each case, the name of Jesus Christ is indicated, showing that faithfulness is a character quality which he possesses. Galatians 2.16 is an example of this usage as well. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Knowing that the law must be fulfilled for God to declare a person righteous, the faithfulness of Christ must be also understood as applying specifically to this context. The human condition is a bad record and a bad heart. According to verse 23, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Every person under the law has fallen short of the glory of God and thereby is possessed of both a bad heart because of being sour in nature and a bad record because of personal sin. The good news is stated in verse 24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. A person's right standing before God is in Christ's redemption, which is freely given as it is outside anything a person can do for himself. Being justified means that since there remains nothing for a man himself, being smitten by the judgment of God unto eternal punishment, he is to be justified freely through the provision in Christ. There is perhaps no passage in the whole scripture which illustrates this in such a striking manner, the efficacy of God's righteousness, as this one does in verse 24. It shows that God's grace is the efficient cause through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. This shows that being justified freely by his grace is through Christ Jesus' payment 
and nothing from the believer, lest one might imagine a kind of half-grace and should be bold enough to attempt to add his own merit to God's grace. Predicament of those that are receiving the gospel is that they were dead in trespasses and sins. Redemption has at its object the reconciliation of man with God. Ephesians 2.1 states clearly the moral condition of a person before conversion. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Colossians 2.13 also states the moral condition clearly. And you being dead in your sins, because of Adam's sin, mankind is born spiritually dead. God himself graciously provides the believer's deliverance from sin. God's gracious free gift is the very core of the good news of the gospel. By grace means the gospel has to do first and foremost with who God is in his holy and righteous nature. The gospel demonstrates that because of who God is, he alone justifies the one who believes. As verse 26 states, to declare, I say, at this time is righteousness, that he might be just and a justifier of him who believeth in Jesus. The final cause of justification is the glory of the divine justice and goodness. We see the riches of God's grace and works righteousness is excluded. Here we see the love of God shown through his son, Jesus Christ, in that this gift of righteousness which cost Christ Jesus his life, is a finished work and is freely given. For to whom does God owe anything? And who can meet his standards under the law? So who can bargain with God or with Christ Jesus that he should even think of offering God anything in exchange for God's righteous judgment of himself? To make such a natural and ridiculous offer would be to attempt bribery of the highest order. Again and again, the Bible states, as in our text, that Christ's righteousness is imputed to the believer freely by God or by God's grace alone. It is in Christ alone that one has right standing before the all-holy God. Ephesians 1, 7 states, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. Biblical justification, therefore, is a perfect and finished work of God. It is God that justifieth. Justification is God's work alone to show his righteousness and the fact that he alone saves. Once God has justified any person, he views that person in Christ. For God, having forgiven the sinner, reckons to his account Christ's righteousness. Thus, justification is by faith alone, without the deeds of the law. The gospel is not a process. The type of witnessing that states, if you will do this and that or take these steps, then God will save you, is a false gospel. A return to the lie of Satan, which implies that God can be manipulated. The gospel does not do this. It declares historical facts. God has acted already in Christ to accomplish the reconciliation that is the gospel. Rather than offering possibility thinking, what every person is commanded to believe is on objective and complete fact. 
God has redeemed all of his own. And we can see that in Isaiah 44, 22, Romans 5, 18, and 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 21. There are two main points regarding receiving the gospel. Biblically, receiving the gospel has, has these two main points. First, that all men are commanded to believe on the Lord Jesus. Second, while the faith to believe is a free gift of God, yet without God's grace, no person can believe. The Lord put the command to believe in a nutshell when he said, if ye believe not that I am he, ye will die in your sins. Likewise, Paul and Silas declared, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved and thy house. The central importance of faith was given by the Lord in the words, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. In the word, the Lord summarizes the situation. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. The Lord Jesus Christ states clearly the reason for this. He that believeth on him... Christ is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. We see these passages in John 3, 18 and 19. The highest expression of the loving kindness of God is grace. The term denotes the very nature of the graciousness of God. Therefore, the scriptures insist that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Jesus Christ. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Salvation does not proceed from anything in the one witness too but rather it issues forth from the sheer mercy of God. The contrast between his grace and human merit is clearly marked out in the plainest of words. And if by grace, then it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. The plan which God has devised for saving people is by faith, in order that his justification of them might be by grace alone, and that his promise and faithfulness be firmly manifested, and they therefore perfect and secure. Therefore, it is a faith that it might be of grace, to the end the promise might be sure to all the seed. The biblical tension between these two points, that every person is commanded to believe, but without God's grace a person cannot believe, must be clearly evident in witnessing to unbelievers. This tension is expressed in some texts. For example, Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God that you believe on him whom he has sent. One of the clearest examples of this is in John 1, 12, and 13. But as many as received him, to them he gave power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Both aspects are also given in the preaching of the Apostle Paul in Acts 13, 38, and 39. 
Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. And by him all that believe are justified from all things from which ye could not be justified by the law of Moses. The design of the Lord in these and other verses is to show that man cannot be justified by his works, to hedge up the temptation of Satan that one can be saved by his or her own righteousness. God's promise of grace is the result. But the scripture hath concluded all under sin that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. In witnessing, it must be made clear to the lost is that the words of scripture, each person must himself or herself hear. Arise, cry out in the night in the beginning of the watches to pour out thine heart like water before the face of the Lord. It's from Lamentations 2.19. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Romans 10.13. Biblically, believing on Christ, trusting on him and coming to him has an essential negative side that is often not mentioned in the modern day tracts and in witnessing. In the Bible, however, it is often first, and it is always a big part of the message. The Lord Jesus Christ's message is, Repent ye and believe the gospel, Mark 1.15. He came to call sinners to repentance, as we see in Luke 5.32. And he insisted that except ye repent, ye shall likewise perish. We see that in Luke 13.3-5. The risen Lord teaches in his word that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name among all the nations. Peter proclaims, repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. Everywhere Paul went, he preached, repent and turn to God and do works meet for repentance. Testifying to both Jews and also to Greeks, repentance towards God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance is so essential to saving faith that if repentance is neglected, a person does not have saving faith. Conviction of sin is the first work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of the lost. We see that in John 16, 8. Without conviction of sin, a person does not have salvation. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Matthew 1.21. Repentance is always part of trusting on Christ, because Christ came not to save a person in his sins, but from his sins. God now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Acts 17.30. In the light of the biblical truth examined here, it is necessary to analyze what is generally given as the gospel in our times. The following words and phrases which are often used in modern evangelical circles are biblically wrong. These expressions can lead an unsaved person to think that some specific behavior on his part is necessary for him to be saved. When these phrases are used, even saved people may mistakenly teach error when witnessing to lost people. Number one, accept Jesus into your heart. It's one of the most used sentences in modern evangelical circles. This humanistic concept is not biblically, biblical. Basically, it is the second lie of Satan, 
The biblical concept of justification is that by it, the believer is made accepted in Christ. The whole theme of Ephesians chapter 1 is summarized in verse 6. To the praise and the glory of his grace wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. The terminology, accept Jesus into your heart, is backwards. It assumes wrongly that the person himself makes the choice to accept Jesus into his human heart and that he initiates the action which will save him. When the believer does abide in Christ by faith and in love keeps his commandments, Christ does dwell in that person's cleansed human heart. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine. No more can ye except ye abide in me. John 15, 4. The whole process of sanctification, Christ in you, the hope of glory, depends first on a person being positionally in him, clothed with his righteousness. It is unscriptural to think that salvation begins by Christ's first coming into the sinful heart of man. The dead and ungodly person can be made acceptable to God only as he is in Christ, as we saw in Ephesians 1.6. Then and only then does Christ come to sanctify the one already saved. The verses below are often wrongly used to evangelize. Rather, these words are addressed to believers alone. And these verses are, And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open a door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne. That's from Revelation 3, 14 and 20 through 21. The second uh, statement often given is, give Jesus control of your life to be saved. It's another well-known unbiblical approach. This teaching is an error because the sovereign God of the universe controls his creation. He is the one who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. We see that in Ephesians 1.11. Nothing any person might think of to give God in exchange for salvation is acceptable before God. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. We see in Titus 3.5. Jesus Christ himself was the only sacrifice for sin acceptable to a holy God. And that sin offering was accomplished completely at the cross. The sacrifice for sin is finished. A person is saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, not by a promise of a controlled behavior. Controlled behavior is a process following on salvation rather than the initiating cause of salvation. And thirdly, give your life to Jesus to be saved. This teaching is an error for several reasons. First, eternal life is a free gift. A person does not give anything for a free gift. This free gift is given to a person by God when he places that person in Christ Jesus. With the gift of salvation all comes the gift, also comes the gift of faith to believe that this is what God has done. See also John 5, 24 and 25. Sin is what separates a man from God. Second, such phrases as give your life to Jesus wrongly presumes that a person has something worthy of God to give. Spiritually dead people cannot give anything that will save them from their sins. 
Because man is dead in sin. Christ Jesus gave his life for the sins of his people. There is no Bible verse that says or teaches that a lost, spiritually dead person gives anything, not even his life, in order to be saved. When a lost person is taught to give his life to Jesus to be saved, he may think that he has to give his service, time, works, money, etc. to be saved. This may lead the lost person into a works gospel, which can never save. Getting saved is not a trade-in by which God gives a person anything to be saved. A person is saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and nothing else. See Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. Repentance is also God-given and not a human trade-in item. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. From Acts 5, 31. So in summary, biblical methodology is an important part of the Lord's truth. The Lord's own method of evangelizing was essentially by asking questions and by proclaiming the need to repent and believe. Likewise, the apostles proclaimed the Lord's commandment to believe. There are no invitation systems in Scripture. Such a method, flagrantly setting aside the sovereignty of holy God, presupposes that man has within himself the power to accept or reject salvation as he so wishes. One shows that the Lord Jesus Christ's saving work is factual and complete. Clearly, one must make it known that all are commanded to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. To do this, one must repent of all his or her own efforts to establish his or her, her own righteousness and to cry out to God for his free gift of grace. The central point of God's saving the ungodly is that he does so by imputing the righteousness of Christ to the one who believes. This is the theme of Romans chapter 4 and is summarized wonderfully in verse 5. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. The reason why God imputes Christ's righteousness to the believer is to show who he is. To declare, I say, at this time his righteousness that he might be just and a justifier of him who believeth in Jesus. Unless modern evangelicals return to the clear biblical understanding and their witnessing, it will become easier and easier for them to promote a humanistic process or a technique that is not what the true gospel is about. Coming to Christ is initiated by the Father who draws each individual and has given to each, each one to Christ. Salvation is accomplished by God's grace alone. It is his free gift through faith alone. Coming to Christ is having eternal life now, which life will be fully glorified in heaven. In witnessing, to talk about getting to heaven, not only changes the focus from who God is to man's fulfillment, but it also fails to make clear that through the precious faith that is ours now as believers... We already have eternal life. Rather than talking about getting to heaven, those who have been saved are to proclaim to the lost 
And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. We see that in John 17, 3. And what is written, likewise, must be proclaimed by those who are saved, whether in a supermarket or on a telephone. These things I have written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. Two extremely great offenses to God in his gospel are the attempt to negate his power by so-called free decisions of the unsaved and the unbiblical idea that justification, which is an act of God, is located in the believer's heart rather than in Christ alone and in the heavenlies. When full credit is given to God in his grace, when his word, which is powerful, is used, he saves the sinner, and the one through whom the word has been given is humbled by a demonstration of the might and mercy of a holy God. Both people benefit to the glory of God, as is stated in Ephesians 1.6, to the praise of the glory of his grace. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your instruction. We thank you, Lord, that you are a sovereign God. And Lord, we confess that we've failed many times in our efforts to communicate your words to others. But we only do that as well by your grace and as we are empowered by your spirit. Help us, Lord, to do so faithfully as we go from this place tonight. Give us more instruction every day from your word. Continue to sanctify us and grow us in grace. We might, Lord, show our light and your grace to others. We ask all this according to your word in Jesus' name. Amen.